You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome back to our podcast, Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, with Sarah Raven and Arthur Parkinson. And this is an episode that we thought Arthur and I would explain the terms that we throw around, perhaps a little bit too liberally. I always think gardening has a new language that you have to learn, and it shouldn't be assumed that you know it. And it doesn't need to be patronising. It's like, if you don't know how to speak Japanese, how are you going to understand Japanese? So for those of you who are seasoned gardeners, you can turn off right now. You really don't need to listen to this. But for those of you who are quite new to gardening, we might be describing some things that you'll find useful. So, Arthur, will you tell me what an annual is, first of all? An annual is a plant that lives all within one season. So it germinates as a seed, grows, flowers, sets its seed, normally within about six months. And annuals divide into two groups. One is called hardy. And what that means is it can take the frost and it can actually live in the garden through the winter and come into growth again in the spring. It won't get killed by the frost. That's a hardy annual. And a classic example is a corn poppy that could get sown in a field after its mother has flowered in the summer, in the autumn. It germinates, grows all the way gently through the winter, and then in the spring and summer it comes into flower. A half-hardy annual, a classic example, uh, and a plant that Arthur and I both grow lots of, is a cosmos. Now that comes from warmer climates, and if that is subjected to frost, it'll die. And so you actually sow that in March and April to plant out once the frosts are over in your garden and it will be zapped by the frosts again in the autumn. So annuals are plants that Arthur and I both adore, both in terms of edible, but even more in the, uh, for Arthur in the, in the terms of ornamental varieties. And particularly it's because they're cut and come again. So what that means is that if you pick the leader the first flower at the top of the plant, but you only pick it above a pair of leaves. What then happens is that between the main stem and that pair of leaves, you then get two little buds forming, which are called auxiliary buds, and they go on to make next week's flower. So you cut and they come again. And you also have that with lots of the different salad leaves and edibles like spinach or chard. If you pick individual leaves in the main growing season, the heart grows out and will replenish them again. So they are cut and come again. So those are all important sort of terms that we'll band around quite a lot. And then Arthur, what's a perennial? So a perennial is the lazy gardener's favourite thing in the world in that it comes back year after year and it also multiplies to its own sort of heart really. You end up having a sort of heart with nothing in it, but lots of babies around what was the original plant that you planted. So a typical perennial would be an aster or a helenium. And some Rebecca's, echinops, red hot pokers, peonies would also be classed, of course, as perennial. They'll last as long as we would do naturally out in the garden. So they're the kind of thing that you can plant in a permanent position, 
you possibly would lift and divide them after about two years of them growing, but they'll come back year after year and the majority of them are hardy. But tender perennials are something such as a dahlia, which would be classed as a perennial in that it can come back year after year, but it's the kind of thing that will need a little bit of protection from the frost in some parts of the country, normally through mulching or through being lifted. And and also, I mean, talking about dahlias, Arthur, what, what's a tuber? We perhaps ought to describe what a tuber is. Yeah, we really should. So a tuber is basically an energy store. If you imagine a potato, it's full of all the energy which the dahlia needs to grow. And if you were to cut a tuber in half, it would look exactly like a potato. And from the tuber, the roots every spring start to grow. And in the case of a dahlia, it will make baby tubers all through the growing year. And those tubers you can then lift and divide to make new plants. And the uh, only other thing about perennials that I thought might be worth mentioning is that they divide into evergreens. And those are things that remain with leaves above ground, even all through the winter. And that's like one of the hellebores. And then herbaceous. And what herbaceous means is that they die down like a peony. And you think they've died. I mean, they completely disappear in the autumn. And then in the spring, up come fresh new leaves. So the roots are still there below ground with a herbaceous perennial. But the leaves have gone, but they appear again miraculously in the spring. And then what's a biennial, Arthur? So this is where it gets interesting. It's still an annual in that it won't last forever, but it takes a bit longer to come into flower. So biennials or your lovely things that fill that gap when Chelsea flower shows on and you look out into the garden and you're glad to have them so they include foxgloves, honesty and also sweet williams and wallflowers and they're all normally sown about the middle of to the end of summer they'll make lovely little plants and then they'll all over winter to flower the following spring so they almost take almost a year to come into flower but it's between summer and then they flower the next spring exactly and then a couple of other things that you and i talk about quite a lot are propagating um that's the first and we do all our mm. propagating here at perch hill on a heated bench and it's actually it's homemade and we, we made it here about 20 years ago and it's just on a table and then there's a horticultural electric blanket laid on top of that but between the wood and the horticultural electric blanket is some polystyrene insulating tiles. So all the heat is deflected upwards rather than sinking into the ground. And then we cover over the um, horticultural electric blanket with capillary matting. But if you want to, you can just go and buy a propagator from the local garden centre or online and you get the same thing. But if you make your own, you get about 10 times the size for the same amount of money. So um, that's what we tend to do here. Do you have one, Arthur? I don't, but I do love capillary matting. It's like posh carpet for growing plants um, and it soaks up the water like blotting paper. And it's really helpful uh, to keeping everything nice and refreshed. Yeah, it, it just means you don't have to water quite so much, does it? Mm. And then the other thing in terms of propagating that is important to understand what it means is pricking out. And all that means is that when you sow seeds into a seed tray... We always try and sow them really, really well spaced, far apart. You can't always do that because if they're dust like seeds, it's just too fiddly. But then the point is, if you have sown them very well spaced, you can then prick them out, which means removing one individual seedling from the seed tray 
and putting it into its own pot on its own completely. So it's sort of growing. I always think of it as like sort of nursery and then primary school is in its own pot. And and then you sometimes pot it on into secondary school pot and then out into the garden is is life. But pricking out is that first stage when it's going from being with all its brothers and sisters crammed into a seed tray into its own individual pot. And how do you do that, Arthur? Can you give a few tips for the most effective pricking out? So I always wait until my little seedlings are looking like they're properly growing when they've got their first or even their second pair of proper what look like adult leaves. And that signals that they've got nice little root systems. And also what I always do is make sure that they're nice and moist. And that means that as you remove them from the seed tray, they'll take with them a little teabag amount of soil. And that will be a comfort to them as they're put into their first stage of potting on. And it means that they don't become at all hydrated. You should never, ever touch the stem of a seedling that can kill it instantly. Just the the friction and the pressure of your fingers can be enough to kill that little plant. So instead, use a little teaspoon or even an old pencil as your dibber and just gently pince out each seedling into the pot. And what I would also recommend is whenever you're filling up a plant pot, regardless of its size, always try and foot it down and fill it up properly. Don't plant a seedling into a a little plant pot that's got half the amount of compost in. You want to give each seedling the biggest amount of compost to grow a nice root system into. Perfect. And the other thing I know you and I feel pretty strongly about is the whole organic versus chemical way of gardening. So certainly in terms of compost, both you and I would only ever use a peat-free compost, and that isn't always easy because certainly coir tends to dry out more quickly and hold less nutrients. But there's so many trials going on right now by the RHS mainly, but lots of other people and loads of nurseries experimenting with good alternatives to peat. And whenever we say use a compost, we always mean a a non-peat-based compost. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Sarah. And then also, Arthur, what do we mean by organic? So you won't hear me and Sarah suggesting that you use any chemicals or slug pellets because both me and Sarah and the team at Perch Hill are very much dedicated to gardening with wildlife and making the garden part of our natural environment as much as possible. So although it might seem that we're growing exuberance and tons of flowers in all these different colours, a lot of the time we are working with nature. So organic basically means not using any chemicals or anything that would harm wildlife in a detrimental way. So we will, of course, have to manage slugs and some pests such as vine weevil, but we'd only ever use things that would only kill those specific insects in the garden. We wouldn't use mass chemical genocide on wildlife. Absolutely. Bees and butterflies and birds in the garden are the way in both our gardens. And what we've found over the years here is by encouraging the wild bird and garden bird population. So blue tits, great tits, cold tits, long-tailed tits, as well as the finches like the goldfinches, which have become so common brilliantly in gardens, robins, wrens, thrushes, blackbirds, By encouraging them and feeding them through the winter, we have bigger populations in the garden and they eat the aphids that are a pain. You know, they eat the slugs and that wonderful noise that you hear, which is a thrush eating a snail in April or May, which is, of course, fantastic because it means you don't need 
to kill them yourself because you got the birds to do that for you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange. In our first episode, which you can listen to now, Arthur and I will be talking about winter salads and hellebores. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahoven.com.